he got fired as a associate, maybe youth minister at his Presbyterian church when his alligator jumped out of the organ. Um, what are we talking about? Yeah, what? I'm what, not, what, I, what? So hold on. Really, so wait, he had, I'm telling he you, lost me at the it's snakes, amazing. The it's amazing. All right, hold on. Let me just recap for a second. He had snakes on his all house, over his house, all over his house, all and over his then house. an alligator in his organ. Hey, and welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast. We are thrilled that you are joining us, whether it be by video or just listening to us on the podcast. However you are listening or watching, welcome. Uh, this is a series that we're doing as a part of Perimeter Church um, that's a part of our Digging Deeper podcast, but we're focusing specifically on, for the next several, seven to eight episodes, Faith and and uh, with each one, we'll fill in the blank on the back end with something a little bit different, faith and technology, faith and so on and so forth. And so uh, kicking this series off, I am thrilled, excited, expectant, uh, can't wait, honestly, for you to hear all that we have in store and the things that we're recording and the people that we're able to talk to and hear their hearts and their desires and expertise in these specific areas. And um, I, by the way, Jeff Norris, senior pastor, Perimeter Church, co-host here with me, Laura Story Elvington, who's also on our uh, leadership team here at Perimeter and serves in a capacity of ways, worship leader, and lots of other things. Um, so, Laura, thanks for joining joining me. And on this first episode, we have my good friend and uh, partner in ministry and and fellow Alabama fan. Well don't don't hate us for that. <laughs> well done. Um, we're in Georgia land, so we have to be careful. But uh, Colin Hansen, thank you so much for joining us on this Thanks, first guys. one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to be here. Yeah, we are thrilled, thrilled to have you. Let me tell you who Colin is real quick off the top. You may recognize him as an author. He's written, gosh, I don't know how many books now. Uh, a dozen or so. Yeah, a lot. Edit- I mean, editing and writing and everything. Yeah. Right, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> some of you may first have read one of his books, his first book of Young, Reformed, and Restless. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out in 2008. That was the first thing I had read from Colin. And um, But he's the editor-in-chief at Gospel Coalition. He's the vice president of content at Gospel Coalition. He serves as adjunct professor um, of uh, apologetics at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. And perhaps probably where we'll camp out most in this podcast is what your recent, most recent work is, is in launching uh, what, what you're calling the Keller Center, Right after Tim mm-hmm. Keller, mm-hmm. the Keller Center for uh, Cultural Apologetics. That's uh, a beautiful beginnings of what I think is going to be a beautiful work and blessing to the church and Christians at large. And um, and so anyway, we'll get into that. And let me just show you in relation to that. Those of you who can see tuning in on YouTube, those that can't, I'm holding up a book called Timothy Keller: His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation by Colin, and uh, just a wonderful work on the life and ministry and formation of the person that we know as Timothy Keller, short uh, Tim Keller, and uh, we'll talk to you a little bit about that as well. But you come to us from Birmingham, drove over this morning, and uh, be with us in our officers tonight, uh, the night that we're recording this. But so thrilled to have you, brother Laura. Any thoughts is before we no. Jump I just in want to here. clarify. So that book is mine. So he, <laughs> when I first met him, he True. handed it to me and said, "This book is for you." I just, I Not know for the, you, Jeff. I see. You Did looking, I take it from you? Well, I see you looking at it and holding it up as if it's yours. I I just, I, well, between between I just want what to clarify. Well, listen, and I think I have three copies now. Okay. Well, that's well, good. But, oh, now you're now you're bragging. What, <laughs> I think you got the fancy copy. I got the, the fancy copy copy from the publisher oh, that okay. Colin sent early. Yes. Then I had ordered one before I knew I was going to get the fancy early uh-huh. copy, and then apparently now I've stolen yours. So, oh, yes. uh, so I have three copies. Just so you uh, feel really guilty if you didn't read it. That's right. <laughs> exactly. It's like I didn't have an excuse, right? Okay. Um, well, yeah. we want to hear, so from Birmingham, who who is family, who, yeah. all of that. How yeah. did you end up in Birmingham? Is, are you from there? Yeah, I am not. I grew up on a farm in South Dakota, so oh, it's quite wow. different from Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, really? How so? How no, do I'm, you, joking. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> How do you arrive in Birmingham? <laughs> wonderful place, wonderful place to be, but uh, through my wife, uh, mm. through Lauren. Uh, so she we met in college in Chicago and lived in Chicago for a long time, New York City as well, and then moved down to Alabama. Down there, college so. college was Northwestern, Northwestern University. Yep. So yeah, I met uh, 
met this, uh, I was a sophomore, she was a freshman, and she just wouldn't stop talking about college football in Alabama. Wow. And I knew that was <laughs> so you married into the royal family. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And there I got to tell go. people, I, I, I did it at the low point. Yeah. It, was, it was not Alabama football to be proud of back then. Yeah. So I went through some of the hard times before hey, the good times. I just need to say, before someone turns us off because we're mentioning <laughs> Alabama football, I just all to our Georgia listeners out there, our Clemson listeners, <laughs> you guys are great, okay? Just don't don't hold it against us. Yeah. Just, I was know. actually looking at my watch to see how long it <laughs> how would long take it would go. Yeah. We how how long it would take you to start some restraint. Talking. That's what our so, phone so calls are for. So far it's been twice that it's just come up <laughs> in the midst of this fake I would, ends. Yeah. I, would like, I would like to think that within the first two minutes, I mentioned it right you definitely did we uh we've we've got we've got an eight-year-old son we've got a five-year-old daughter we've got oh. a one-year-old son um and uh so we've we've got a pretty full yeah. full life a lot of yeah. piano lessons and baseball games and gymnastics and dance and then just a little one-year-old marauder walking around the house <laughs> yes. tearing everything up oh, yes. constantly man. with a full head of big blonde hair oh wow that's, our little that's awesome Amazing. that's awesome <laughs> all right so tell us about uh the the origins of the gospel coalition yeah so gospel coalition's first meeting goes back to 2005 i think it was may 22nd something like that but it was a group of pastors from across North America. They were convened by Don Carson, New Testament professor at mm-hmm. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and then Tim Keller. And what I think is so interesting is that Tim Keller was introduced to these other pastors as not very well known. Huh. And hmm. um, if you weren't in the PCA or have a connection with RUF or something like that, right. you might not have known. That's three years before his first two best-selling books would come out, Prodigal hmm. God, as well as uh, The Reason for God. Hmm. So, yeah, so that started. Then they spent a couple years working on foundation documents. The other pastors that people would know uh, from those beginning years, people like Ligon Duncan, John Piper, Mark Dever, Mm -hmm. uh, folks like that. And so that was the first couple years working out their uh, documents, which you can still go see today on our site, thegospelcoalition.org, our theological vision for ministry, originally drafted by Tim Keller. And uh, then 2007, first public meeting, that's when I covered it for Christianity Today magazine. And the whole idea was calling the North American church, especially now it's spread all around the world, mm. calling back to first principles, calling back to the gospel. So it's like how biblical theology, more or less, from Genesis to Revelation points to Christ yeah. and fulfilled in Christ. Um, <clears throat> if you guys are watching on YouTube, you can just go out there and check for Tim Keller's message on gospel-centered ministry. Uh, from 2007, it was a transformative message where he goes through the whole Old Testament. Well, mm. first of all, he says, you've, you have to realize the Bible's not about you. Yep. The Bible's about God. And he goes through the whole Old Testament and shows how everything is pointing to Jesus. Yep. So the idea was show how all of the Bible points to Jesus and his gospel, mm. and then from that gospel, how it applies to all of life. Mm. That was the basic idea that they came together around. And for me as a seminary student at the time, that was so exciting. Yeah. At Divinity. Um, I was studying yep. biblical theology there yeah. with, with Don Carson. And um, I think for me, just my faith came alive in new ways when I was seeing the Old Testament mm-hmm. come alive. And, mm-hmm. and that is, that's never changed yeah. uh, for me ever since then. It's always been what I've been excited about mm-hmm. uh, with, with TGC. And so, yeah, I've been there since 2010 and um, serving in a variety of capacities on our content side. Yeah. And so, so your entry point there was through... Covering the event for mm-hmm. Christianity Today or for, through Yeah, Don that's Carson? right. Covering it through Christianity Today. And then Don Carson was one of my professors mm-hmm. and then recruited me through seminary. I thought I was heading into pastoral ministry. The Lord had some other ideas, and that's where I've been ever since. That's so you've great. been there ever since graduating seminary? 2010, yeah. So, yeah. Um, in fact, again, the way it worked out was that I, <clears throat> I, just, I was looking for a job, and my wife and I felt strongly led to Birmingham for a variety of reasons. Um, evangelistic reasons, missional reasons, connections to Beeson Divinity School. So we ended up choosing a job that would allow us to move to Birmingham, and it was remote. Mm. The Gospel Coalition was remote at the time and still is before everybody else went remote (laughs) around the world after 2020. Yeah, yeah. So 13 years with the Gospel Coalition now. Uh, The impact that that entity has is tremendous. You know, I mean, I know for me personally... I go to the website often, read the articles often, uh, so much of just even how uh, I think about ministry and theology, biblical theology and so forth, has been shaped by so many of the authors that have been featured on the Gospel Coalition and so forth. 
um, what's the mission for like if you what's the mission statement? What is it you guys are chasing after? What is it you're hoping to accomplish mm-hmm. through the coalition? Well, church can become about a lot of different things. It can become about politics. It can become about connections for business. It can be a, a social network. It can be an entertainment venue. But the only thing that actually keeps any church going is the gospel, mm-hmm. the message of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. But we're constantly tempted to become about other things mm-hmm. in the church, make other things the prim- primary thing. And so that's always been the message. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what our mission is, help church leaders, but that could include parents, that could include mm-hmm. small group leaders, pastors, professors, anybody like that. Just help them get focused on the gospel and then see how that applies to yeah. the rest of their lives. One of the things that I appreciate the most about <clears throat> TGC is uh, the effectiveness to which you guys are able to produce content that is helpful for this cultural moment, right? Mm-hmm. And speaking into, yes, historical Christianity and orthodoxy, while also, like you said, even like helping parents even like use that as an example again of how do, how do we raise our kids in this day and age? You know, uh, um, I could go on and on, but so kind of launching off that, you guys have, you, you have started mm-hmm. this Keller Center, right, mm-hmm. for cultural apologetics, which again, like I said in the opening, man, I think there's so much of a beautiful opportunity yeah. that that hopefully the Lord is birthing through this. Um, maybe we start here with that as we kind of move into this category of cultural apologetics and just this cultural moment. What mm-hmm. is this cultural moment? Like what what are ways, I mean, yeah. that's a huge question, obviously, mm-hmm. but what are some ways that you can say like, hey, here's what we're looking at, here's what we're facing, here's what we're walking into in the next uh, years to come and even right now? You know, I think, Jeff, that, most of us are just trying to get through each day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you wake up and you just think about all the responsibilities you have for family or for work or just cleaning up your house or who knows. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no matter what age you are, yep. single or married or younger or older, you're just kind of thinking, you're thinking just on that eye level. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily understanding how many, what other things are happening, what other Things are affecting your life, and um, and I had a moment uh, years ago when I was talking with a professor named named James Davison Hunter at the University of Virginia. He's a sociologist, and I was asking him about an election, a presidential election. These are big deals, you know. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars on these things and talk about them all the time. And I was asking him questions about culture, and he said, "I don't know. You're treating me like a weather reporter." You know, he asked mm. me if it's going to be stormy tomorrow mm. or overcast or sunny. He said, I'm a climatologist. I talk about 50-year trends, 100-year mm. trends, mm. those kinds of things. Yeah. And it clicked with me, and I thought, so many of us are thinking just, is it going to be sunny tomorrow? Do I need a coat? Yeah. Instead of thinking about how have things changed in the last 50 years or 100 years mm. or where are we heading in there? And so to answer your question, Jeff, most of the questions that we our culture moment are not about the things that you you think of that you see on your social media mm-hmm. feed. The immediate. They're about right. the things mm-hmm. that you take for granted. Yeah. Um, they're the things like um, what are the effects on a society of delayed marriage? Um, people get married much older or are much mm-hmm. less likely to get married. Um, yeah. What are the effects of far fewer babies mm-hmm. being born? What does that mean? What happens to a culture when? 40 million Americans have left the church in the last 25 yeah, years. Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of questions that that I try to focus on at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics focuses on as well. But that's kind of our, our cultural moment is that a lot of the things that we think are the most important are, are not. Yeah. It's the ones that we don't think about or just take for granted that have a much bigger, more profound effect on our lives. So again, just to give another example... We could never, even those of us who are older, who spent our childhood or even part of our adult life without the internet, yeah. it'd be hard to imagine a world without the internet. And yet at the same time, the internet is in world history brand new. Yeah, We don't have any sense at this point of the consequences. So let me give you an example. When we look back on the internet one day, will it be something like um, the invention of the printing press? Mm. Huge development. There's no Protestant religion without that. There's no Western culture in a lot of ways, or at least our understanding of it without the printing press. And yet is the internet 
a better analogy for the printing press or the invention of language itself. Hmm. Those are two very different things. Language itself was one of the most important inventions in all of human history. Um, We see it right there in the beginning of the Bible, the scattering of the languages and the Tower of Babel and things like that. Which is the better analogy? We don't have any idea Yeah. at this point. It'll probably be our great-grandchildren, our great-great-great-grandchildren that kind of figure that out. But, but we have to get a handle on some of that now to understand what sort of effect it's having on us that we don't even really anticipate. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I'm asking all the questions, Laura. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Uh, you shared I'm, some... I'm still back on the house cleaning thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were you saying You're like, I'm just yes. with my one-year-old son of like, how do I get it to stop him yeah. from putting his shoes in the tea kettle? Are you, saying, I don't are you understand. saying that, it, that we should be cleaning our house? Is that <laughs> right, right. And I mean, the cultural effects lost of cause. not? Is that a, what lost cause in my home. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jeff. That's Sorry. Yeah, yeah. While well, you chew on that, I mean, I, yeah, we our kids are a little bit older than, than yeah. y'all's. We're in the teenage years, but we lost our minds and got a puppy recently. Oh. So, so you're back. So I'm back. You're also yeah. getting the chewed up shoes totally. in the tea kettle. And the, yeah. and the why do <laughs> I clean good. anything, you know, yes. thing. Pointless. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, so you shared with me and a few others that were having lunch together along those same lines that you were just mm-hmm. talking about uh, that over the, over the last, and you can correct me if I have the, the yeah. timing off here a little bit, but um, I want to say 50 years, but... Anyway, you had 70% of people. 20 years. Is it, oh, it was only 20 only years. Only 20 years. Okay. You know where I'm going. Yeah, Finish I can, that I thought. Can, yeah. 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 So, so here's, here's what I mean. Um, so for 50 years, when the Pew Research uh, Organization, one of the premier social mm-hmm. survey organizations, a lot of those groups proliferated after about World War II, just mm-hmm. kind of mass mechanized society. Okay, taking surveys. Okay. So for 50 years... 70% of Americans are affiliated with a religious institution. Mm-hmm. The year 2000 hits, and that number begins to decline. Two years ago, it reaches 47%. For 50 years, it doesn't change from 70. 2000 hits, and then it declines every year, and now we're at 47. And it doesn't look like we're stopping mm-hmm. anytime soon. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean about the big trends that it's easy for, to take for granted, especially when you're at a place like Perimeter Church. Yeah. Because a society can becoming can become far, far, far more secular, and large churches can still be successful, or in some ways even be more successful than they ever have been before. So it can become very confusing to understand when maybe your world hasn't changed much, at least that you think, yeah. right. but the world around you has changed dramatically. So part of what I try to do in my courses at Basin Divinity School and working on cultural apologetics mm-hmm. that we also do with this new Keller Center is to try to introduce church leaders to some of these changes and give them tools to be able to, to look, to visualize those changes and understand why, mm-hmm. and then be able to implement discipleship programming and strategies that are thoroughly biblical, but that are, are able to meet the moment mm-hmm. for parents, for... Mm-hmm. You know, for, for, for elders, for small groups and things like that. That's what we're trying to do. So before, oh, go ahead. Um, well, I was yeah. just, so yeah. um, one thing that you had on, on your material, you say an unprecedented challenge, yeah. a great opportunity. Right. So an unprecedented challenge, that's all of what you're saying yeah. sounds terrifying. Yeah. just want to be honest. <laughs> um, a little depressing. Just focus on cleaning. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. Exactly. Clean yeah. the yeah. house. But well, you say it's a great opportunity. Yeah. yeah. How is, is, is that you just... Like, are we Just being marketing language? We- yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, think about this. Um, so I wrote the wrote this book on Tim Keller. And uh, one of the things that I, I enjoyed doing most was spending a day immersing myself in music from the first year that he started, um, started college. Okay. Well, Laura, you're the musician here. So 1968. All right. Let's see if you can guess. What was the number one song in America when Tim Keller started his undergraduate studies at Bucknell? If she's, if she's wrong, can I guess too? Yeah, you can okay. guess too. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, 68. Fortunately, I can say that I was not alive. <laughs> <laughs> Neither one of us. Neither one of us, none of us was us. alive back um, then. Okay. Wow. Uh, it's a big year for music. Big year for, I mean, it's oh, Woodstock, by the way. I was yeah. Say, Woodstock. Uh, I was going to say, um, yeah, American Graffiti had not happened yet. That was okay. a pretty fantastic soundtrack. Give us a genre. Give us a genre. Uh, pop. Pop. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not where I was going. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, well, pop rock. Pop rock. 
See, I was thinking either Hendrix or Jim Croce. Was it Beatles? Uh, Beatles. Was it Beatles? Yeah. Okay. Was hey it? Jude. Hey, hey Jude. Jude. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So nice. A little famous song. Yeah, okay. a little bit. Yeah. So I immersed myself in that. Um, when you go back to Tim Keller's undergraduate years, just think about this. 1968, you've just watched everything with the civil rights movement and yeah. America tearing itself apart, trying to grapple with this original sin in this country. Um, you've watched that year Martin Luther King mm-hmm. be assassinated. Mm-hmm. You've watched Robert Kennedy be assassinated only five years, of course, after his brother's been assassinated. Um, you've, you've watched Woodstock. You've watched uh, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Mm-hmm. This ended a complete chaos, police brutality, things like that. You're an undergraduate. Your professors are all teaching you about the death of God. Mm. Existentialism, yeah. Albert Camus. Um, they're still teaching Sigmund Freud in all the religion classes about everything's just God is just a projection of our of our desires, mm. our psychological self. Okay, do you think that was the time? Would you have ever expected that was the time, Laura? Yeah, that God would Such send one of the point. most massive revivals mm-hmm. of religion mm-hmm. in American history, the mm-hmm. Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who was a convert of the Jesus movement? Tim Keller. Tim Keller, yeah. Mm. Um, and Kathy, his, <clears throat> you know, who had become his wife, was a major youth leader during a, a huge revival in the Pittsburgh area at the time, yeah. especially connected to the Presbyterian Church um, back there, which had the largest Presbyterian in the country mm. at the time. Um, in fact, you go back and Tim Keller had a crisis of faith in large part because of disaffection with his family and his church about civil rights. He felt like Oh, I went off to college and realized my, my family, my church had been lying to me mm. yeah. about this. Well, somebody else who had that same crisis of faith was right here in Atlanta in 1967, one year older, Philip Yancey. Mm. And mm. so when you look back on these people that you take for granted as being these pillars of yeah. the faith, yeah. when you go back and you look at their actual lives, that's not, that wasn't inevitable. You, you couldn't have seen that. Yeah. You never would have guessed that. So the opportunity, Laura, is that God doesn't send revivals except when nobody expects them. That's the whole point of a revival. (laughs) If it were expected, it wouldn't be a revival. You got to be bad to be good. (laughs) That's a different song. (laughs) (laughs) Also a great song. Also a great song. (laughs) Not 68. (laughs) But uh, yes, that's the opportunity, Mm -hmm. is that when does the Lord delight to bless his church and to bless his people, except when you least expect it? And so we we shouldn't be daunted by even bad statistics, God's not daunted by bad statistics. That's so good. So that's the opportunity. So I'm going to come back to that. Don't let me forget. Just remind me. Comments that that Colin made on revival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to it. But yeah, a different book I wrote. Different book. There you go. <laughs> uh, I'm still coming back to that. Like you know, when you shared that earlier, I went, "Wow, okay." 50 years it stayed at 70 percent. Now we're looking. The last 20 years has dropped down to 47 percent as of now. And declining. Yeah. And declining. Why? Yeah. What are things that we point to? What are things that we put our finger on and go, here's, here's, we don't know for sure, probably at yeah. some level, but here's some things we can guess. Normally you've got to, you got to pay for a degree program and sit with me in a class for four hours a day for two weeks to work through that question. So, mm-hmm. so if you, so let's boil it down to two minutes. Hold huh? on. Let's say this. If, <laughs> if you're, if you're thinking about taking Colin's class, cut it off now. Yeah. Don't listen to the rest of this. You have to take the class. No, yeah, we, I'm, we, I'm saying if you really, if you wanted the full answer, you need to enroll. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. There you, there, you there you go. Um, no, yeah. So we, so we start the class with that question. We end the class with that question. It's amazing to watch a room of students, future church leaders, light up when you begin to connect the dots mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And you could do that. Anybody could do this. Your elders could do it in a church. Even your small group could do it. Once you start to get the momentum rolling, think about this. Okay, so 2000, I actually, I'll cut to the chase. I think the biggest factor is it's the first year that a majority of Americans have the internet in their homes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the PC revolution that only hits mm-hmm. 50% in, in 2000. Uh, right after that, of course, you have the September, September 11th attacks. Yeah. Now, you can go in a lot of different directions with that, but the direction that I go with it is that you had a flip in the kind of quote-unquote enemy of America. Before that, it's a communist, an atheist. After that, it's a religious believer. But see, as we've experienced 9-11, mm-hmm. it was not just Muslims, though they took a lot of criticism for that. Yeah. Very difficult for them. But it was any religious believers, especially those religious believers who would want to implement their values in politics. Mm. In fact, 2004 was the last time a Republican president has ever won the popular vote. It's never happened since Mm. then. Mm. 
Mm. It was a values voter election in 2004, gay marriage, things like that. But anyway, things start to really flip there as well. One of the underrated ones that people don't remember, it's the Boston Globe Spotlight survey of, of clergy abuse yeah. in the yeah. Catholic Church. Yeah. Now, yeah. that was not the first case of clergy abuse. It was the first case of clergy abuse that had the internet mm. to spread it Interesting. Oh, wow. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and if you think the situation in America is dramatic, head over to Ireland. Mm. Mm-hmm. Gone from being one of the most religious countries in the world to being perhaps the least religious mm. in one generation, mm. related to the same dynamic there. Um, you know, smartphones come in 2007. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of permutations that we could look at there. Um, and we could go on and on, but those are some of the general factors mm. that we talk about. So what are the there. implications there? Because of internet, because of smartphones, because of the... There's now... Uh, what, draw, connect some yeah. dots for us. What, what, some, what, yeah. yeah. So if you're a parent or church leader, anything like that, no one's primary place of influence and formation any longer is geographic. That includes your home. That includes your church. The primary place of formation or information is digital, Mm. and digital doesn't have any barriers. Mm. Okay, so essentially all of your teaching now is in an environment that is fundamentally contested. So what we say at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is that everybody comes to faith now through doubt. Your faith in the past could be more or less an extension of your loyalty to your community, mm. to your family, to your to your broader community. So you just think about a traditional Southern town. Mm. Nobody, you know, not many people wake up thinking, do I want to be a Christian? No, everybody goes to church. So you go to church yeah. too. Yeah. For our children or grandchildren, or whatever, that doesn't make any sense to them because of the internet. They yeah. may they may still say, "Oh, yes, yeah, my parents believe," but at some level, because they're fundamentally oriented toward a digital space, and they're taught that from the earliest mm. age in ways that us who are millennials or Gen X or older or boomers were not, it totally changes the expectation. And so, as I mentioned to church leaders before, teachers teachers experience the same thing. In the past, you had an information advantage when you stood up in front of a group of people. Mm-hmm. The internet means that now everyone else who's sitting there with a smartphone has the information advantage. And through the gurus that they've learned from mm. on their podcasts mm-hmm. and on their social media feeds, they've already formed their beliefs and they just expect you to conform to them. Or confirm. And, and Or confirm, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And if you don't, they don't feel any sorts of sense of loyalty or obligation to you. Mm. So again, as a parent, you still have the most dominant influence on your mm-hmm. kids' lives, but it is highly contested. Yeah. yeah. And virtually nobody comes to faith through a path without having to confront a pretty dramatic um, just exposure to contrary beliefs in fairly at fairly early ages. Yeah. In there. Yeah. yeah. Could you go back yeah. to you mentioned the about the clergy abuse, you know, mm-hmm. those situations. So if you have a culture that has these, um, I don't even want to say wrong views, but they have these, um, they see Christians living yes. differently, whether that's racist, whether right. that's yep. misogynist, whatever it is, how are you, um, <laughs> how are you addressing yeah. that? So that is, that's one of the most difficult yeah. challenges in there. So I just asked people this question, do you think the church is now more abusive, more misogynistic, more whatever than it was 25 years ago. What do you guys think? Hmm. My guess would be to say it's not, we just know more. That's probably my guess as well. Yeah. Right. So what's changed? The media dynamic has Mm -hmm. changed. Now, this is great because in some level there's more accountability. Right. Now, there's far more accountability now. Anybody who was abused in the darkness in the past can now step into the light and hold abusers accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing. The internet empowers victims in ways that it hadn't before. Right. But it's also an enemy to good authority because the internet breeds suspicion that if this person over here did that, yeah. then you probably also are going to do right. that, or you right. probably are also like that. So it just kind of creates that suspicion. So you have to hold those two things in tension. There's no easy way to reconcile it, that 
the internet is an incredible boost to disempowered communities that have been abused in yeah. the past. But it's also a real threat to good and godly authority because the very plausibility structures of being able to lead are undermined by that same context that breeds widespread skepticism. So the only thing you can do is try, you really can't fight the internet. You'd really just have to try to bring whatever you can into the light mm. and just try to live in that light and live in integrity and just take your chances um, even when sometimes you can't disclose everything for some people's good. That's one of the hardest things about leadership is sometimes you can't say everything that you know. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it doesn't help the person that you're trying to serve yeah. and trying to protect in many cases. But that's your only defense. You know, so like I say, the only defense is good living. I mean, it's the only defense here is godly living. That's all you can yeah. say. It's just, you know, you can't get away with stuff that you could have in the past. And so, yes, this has meant, let's just take the Catholic Church. It's meant a severe blow to the Catholic Church, but I mean, hopefully it also has led to a lot less abuse, which is yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. So well, and it's it's just, often, it takes and it gives. Right. Yeah. And it's often, the internet is is new in, in the yeah. grand scheme of history, right? But to your point earlier, it's often when things are exposed and when things are falling apart, when people are running away from the church that God brings revival. And that's yeah. where the opportunity comes in, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, one more thing I'd love for yeah. you to speak to before we get to circling back around to revival, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You said something too, again, offline, uh, uh, that, or, or just when we were having lunch together, that I thought was really, really insightful. And I thought, yes, you just <laughs> nailed it. And that is about, it was a book, you, you can refer to it again, mm -hmm. but where the author of the book kind of talked about how we are by nature, um, not necessarily rational beings, right. but more, and this was, this was interesting to me, more tribal yeah. beings mm -hmm. and how the internet's kind of pulled that back out of us, right? Can you kind of walk through yeah, all that again? Right. Yeah. So this is Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He's at the Stern School of Business at New York University. Mm -hmm. He's a Jewish writer, kind of a political centrist. He's an atheist and Jewish. I probably learned more from him than anybody else outside of the Bible about human behavior in groups, individually. And his fundamental insight is that we imagine ourselves to be rational creatures. I make an argument, you argue back, we think it through, we make a decision. It says, usually, no, we've created a public square that only recognizes rational arguments. In other words, if I don't want to volunteer for a church program, mm -hmm. I can't usually say, because I don't feel like it. <laughs> yes. You've got to come up with some sort of rational explanation mm -hmm. for it. But it might just be because you don't feel right. like right. it. Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, whatever. So that's what he's saying. We have a rational public square, but it, but our instincts drive us, our desires, our intuitions. And our intuitions are driven by what group of people that we want to be like. Mm. Okay, so let me just give you an example of how this works often with deconstruction, people leaving the faith. Okay, so you have a parent out there, you know somebody who's walked away from the faith. They might come back to you with a bunch of rational arguments, Okay. They might be good arguments. They might be meaningful arguments. They might be ones that you want to respond to. But typically what's happened is that they've had a change of desire. There's a new group that they want to be a part of. There's a behavior that they want to be able to engage in. Mm. The arguments are ways of rationalizing that change. And sometimes churches facilitate that deconstruction in ways they don't expect. Mm -hmm. In other words, by shutting off people asking questions hmm. by believing that, no, 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 you can't ask hard questions around here. You can't doubt around mm. here. Well, then they go away and they're not secluded by that community anymore. They're exposed to people who, wait a minute, you're the kind of person I was told was terrible, was hateful, but you're actually pretty nice. Yeah. And in some ways you're nicer than the people mm. that were in the church. Yep. And so I want to be like you now. I want to be in your tribe because your tribe seems so liberating and positive and encouraging and affirming and hopeful. And now my mind is going to come up with a bunch of arguments to give to people for why I'm making this move because they're so hypocritical when it comes to their politics or they're so judgmental yeah. when it comes to their ethics or selective with their biblical ethics. You'll come up with all those arguments, but it wasn't because you sat down and you thought about yeah. the arguments. It's because you had a change of heart of who you wanted to be with at that mm -hmm. point. Right. And evangelism, but the good news is that evangelism works the, works the same way. 
People may want to behave or belong to a group before they can rationally bring themselves to believe. Mm -hmm. So there's a positive side to that too. There's a fundamental recognition that people are group-oriented by nature. The internet is exposing how much tribal we are. We don't necessarily think, this is what I think on everything. We just think, I'm not a part of that group. And if they think this, I think the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or this person says this, and that's my tribe, so I go with them. I mean, look, bottom line is the internet exposes us to infinite questions yeah. mm. that we don't have the time to answer because we're too busy trying to clean our houses and survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but, mm-hmm. but we're forced to think these through, so we outsource our thinking to our tribe. Mm-hmm. Mm. They do the thinking for us. Yeah. And then our intuitions just tell us, okay, this is what my tribe thinks, and so this is what I'll think on this. But primarily, it's just a reaction to the group that you're not a mm. part of mm. in mm. there. So that's the way the internet continues to exacerbate those tribal instincts mm. um, that we have just by our nature. Man, and aren't we so good? Aren't we so, so good? And this goes back to things that Jesus would talk about. Yeah. It, you know talking really well and often about what those people do, right? Yep. And what they're messing up and what mm-hmm. they're terrible at, and but not really self-criticism, right? Well, this so. is a, a preview, uh, Jeff, of what I'll be speaking about with the officers, because the exact temptation is to preach biblical sermons that mm-hmm. call out the sins that we don't struggle with. Mm-hmm. So you can sound very biblical, you can sound very courageous and convictional, because you call out other people's behavior, you don't ever call out the sins that we're right. tempted right. to inside the church. That's just tribalism yeah. right there. But we can kind of hide behind a self-righteousness and call it courage. Which was pharisaical in its nature. Yeah. Now, to be, to be fair, yeah. things that, are, that can be called out are, are legit. I'm not right? saying like, you shouldn't yeah. call them out. I'm saying you shouldn't only call out the sins out there. It's at, it's yeah. at the sin gets inside our church our walls own. too. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. It's it's only one way as yeah. opposed to both ways. That's right? what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. What are you chewing on, Laura? Well, I want to I want to make sure we save just a few minutes yeah. to talk about this amazing book you've just finished. Okay. Uh, and honestly, that was a perfect segue because even what you were talking about uh, with. Christian leadership, mm-hmm. and authentic godly living. I know that Timothy Keller probably was not a perfect man, but what mm-hmm. a what an amazing example. Now, um, now, if Tim were sitting here, he would say, don't say probably. <laughs> I was not a perfect man. Right? <laughs> I've never met him, so I don't want to... Uh, he could be. Yeah. And, you know. Tim, and Tim is still with us. I shouldn't speak of him in the past tense. Exactly. Tim is not a perfect man. But, yeah. Yeah. but um, what, what drew you yeah. to... Uh, was this something that... This is with Zondervan. Is this something that they ask you to do, or is this just something you became passionate about? It is something that the publisher and Tim did ask me to do. It was also something that I encouraged them to do. Mm. So my thought was... I don't care what publisher it is, and I don't care who writes it, but somebody before Tim is not with us mm. anymore just needs to be able to talk to him mm. about his life. But Tim doesn't really like to talk about himself. You don't get a lot of insight when he talks about himself. Mm. You get a lot of insight from him when he talks about himself indirectly by talking about the people that he's learned from. So this actually goes all the way back to something that one of um, Tim and Kathy's best friends from seminary told me. Louise Midwood said that after classes at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside Boston, they would go, they'd be in a class, and then they'd all go back to Tim's dorm room afterward, and he would redo the entire lecture, but in his own way, where you learned even more because of his spin. So if you want to know about Tim, you ask him about Richard Loveless. Mm. What did you learn about Jonathan Edwards and revival from Richard Loveless? You'll learn a lot about Jonathan Edwards and Richard Loveless. You'll learn just as much about Tim Keller Mm. when you do that. If you want to ask Tim about, how'd you learn how to study the Bible? Well, don't ask him that. Ask him, tell me about Barbara Boyd. Mm. What did you learn from her at Bear Tramp? Bear Trap Camp in Colorado in 1971. Oh, you learned inductive Bible study for the first time in her Bible and Life series and things like that. You could go on and on and on and on and on with that. And so that was the approach that I had recommended because I thought that's what Tim will want to, mm. he'll want to work. You know, yeah. that's what he'll want to collaborate on. And so hopefully what people get there is a, a realistic picture of Tim 
We do talk about some of his, his weaknesses and, and sinful proclivities in there. But at the same time, we're just talking about all these people that he learned from. Yeah. Talking about Tim through his influences. Yeah. And the impact Tim. that Tim has had is just tremendous by God's grace, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think it's just easy for take, t- especially within the PCA, but broader evangelicalism, there are certain figures that come around who are so influential that you really just forget what things were like. You just weren't around. Yeah. You don't know what things were like before. But when you think about the PCA as this massive church planting engine with global reach and things like yes. that, that was not only Tim by mm. any means, but he was certainly one of the, if not the leading figures in catalyzing yeah. that. I mean, just, it's hard to remember that there was a time when there weren't a lot of PCA churches in the North, yeah, uh, especially in places like New York City. Well, certainly... Through Tim, Terry Geiger, many others, they yeah. were all used in profound ways to really change the world. Yeah, and Terry's just right here with us. Yeah, yeah, in perimeter. So, uh, someone commented commented to me today who's read who's read the book that one of the things that they weren't expecting to glean from the book is how much it gave them a clear understanding of the beginnings of the PCA. Right, and That's and very true, and how yeah, the mission true. of the PCA was. V- was very evangelical, make disciples, take the great commission, you know, be missional. And, uh, not that we're not that now, but you know, goodness, I don't have, I don't want to begin to unpack (laughs) all the things that that we have been debating within the denomination recently, but, uh, you know, the origins were just so, so good. And Tim was a big part of that, right? Yeah. The PCA, as, as Tim has famously discussed many times, the PCA brings together different streams. Mm -hmm. It brings together a a warm, pious heart. It brings together a desire to seek transformation in the culture. It brings together a a doctrinal, you know, sort of a precision. Mm -hmm. And some people tend one way or another. Uh, Tim, I think probably in the clearest way, in this book, he identifies himself as sort of really holding that pious revival heart there with that desire to seek, influ- you know, not seek influence, but to but to work out that faith yeah. in the culture. Yeah. Um, those are definitely his two strengths and his two, and he inclines that way through primarily the Dutch neo-Calvinist traditions of Abraham Kuyper and, and Herman Bavink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is probably the clearest expression of that. And, and also, this is important to note, he comes to the PCA, came to the PCA, coming through the influence of Ed Clowney at Westminster Seminary, R.C. Sproul, and then beyond that, British evangelicalism, Anglicanism especially. Of course, C.S. Lewis was a big part of that. Yeah. But then John Stott, uh, J.I. Packer within that uh, Anglican church, and then outside of that, also Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he just Tim was not gripped by the American fundamentalist modernist debates that that produced a lot of the, the PCA's mm-hmm. uh, origin story, especially with Machen and Westminster. Mm-hmm. That wasn't primarily Tim's formation. It was British mid-century evangelicalism uh, primarily, and then through that neo-Calvinist tradition. Yeah. So I'm just hopeful that within those PCA debates, people will get a stronger sense of where Tim has been coming from. That's good, mm-hmm. and that's really helpful. Yeah. You mentioned earlier Richard Lovelace, just as a side note, and for the two cents that it's worth, yeah. perhaps my favorite book of all time, Outside the Bible itself, yeah. obviously, is is Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. And, of course, in the book, Tim took that class the first time it was taught as pneumodynamics. Oh, yeah. You know, spiritual yeah. pneuma, pneumodynamics. Um, and um, though I am a little disappointed that Tim didn't take Lovelace's class on Edwards, where he lectured in his home, which was covered with snakes. So that wow. would have been pretty interesting, but wow. um, I missed that part. Wow. Uh, Lovelace was things a tre- just got really weird. Uh, <laughs> Lovelace was a tremendous, a, a fascinating figure. I had to, I had to cut some parts. He actually had bipolar disorder, which mm-hmm. was only diagnosed later. Did there, he really? I did not he know was, that. Um, wow. He uh, he got fired as a an associate, maybe youth minister at his Presbyterian church when his alligator jumped out of the organ. Um, what are we talking about? Yeah, what? I'm what, not, what, I, what? So hold on. Really, so wait, he had, I'm telling he you, lost me at the it's snakes, amazing. The it's amazing. All right, hold on. Let me just recap for a second. He had snakes on his all house, over his house, all over his house, all over and his then house. an alligator in his organ that jumped, or in at, his least, at least organ. Yeah, oh, wow. an, jumped, alligator. an alligator. <laughs> I'm telling you, everybody was like, Lovelace was notoriously absent-minded, and I'm like. 
oh man, when you actually start looking at the stories, they didn't know the half of it. Yeah. So as I'm, a professor, have you ever tried this, <laughs> this tactic <laughs> with the snakes? Just, oh, goodness <laughs> sakes. You know, they also, I think actually he got fired because he showed a really weird R-rated horror movie within its so, youth so ministry. I need you to stop because... <laughs> I, loveless, loveless. Like I said, dynamics of spiritual lives. My favorite oh, book ever. You're no, ruining for no, for no, me. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not meant God to ruin the most flawed That's individuals. That's true. Amen. Amen. As, no, I mean Keller. It, it is. It is a great book. And as Tim has said many times, you'll never understand Tim Keller unless you read that book. Unless you read it's that book. It's the single yeah. best explanation of all these dynamics of revival yep. that have been. I mean, look, he, he was in a revival, the Jesus Movement, in college when he went to New York. That was another major revival that he was a part of. It's always been a huge um, part of his life. And Loveless was the one who gave him through Edwards yeah. a category to be able to understand. Yeah. Okay, so what would you say is is your goal for the book. So I, I read the book. Yeah. I think, man, he was a great guy. But would, what are you wanting me to yeah. feel or go out there and do? So uh, Tim gives us a really good model for how to develop as leaders. Uh, that doesn't, it could be as a parent, could be me as a dad, it could be as, as a worship leader, could mm-hmm. be as a preaching pastor, whatever you want. But the paradigm he gives us is rings on a tree. And I think a lot of leaders, when they're developing, they they go through fads. It's like a, I call it lily pad theology. You just jump to mm. jump to jump, jump mm. to different fads that you get yeah. interested in over time. I like that picture. But that's not Tim. Tim's a ring on a tree guy. That gospel, that conversion, that that just heartbeat of Jesus is at the center. And then it just keeps growing like a mature oak over time. Mm. And by the time you get to the edge, now he's adding in... Alistair McIntyre and Robert Bella and Charles Taylor. He's adding these social critics, yeah. but it's at the edge. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the core. Mm. The core is just this, this heart on fire for God um, uh, mm. through his gospel. And so as leaders, that's how I think we want to develop. We mm. want to keep that heart that if we were to, if, if at the end of our lives, we face cancer like he does right mm. now, then what we will be desiring is number one, a prayer life that wants continually seeks revival. As he Mm. says, I'm not fighting my cancer. I'm fighting my sin. Mm. That's where we want to get. And then just keep reading books. I mean, I think that's (laughs) so Tim, you get cancer and you're like, what do you want to do? I'm going to, I'm going to read some books. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just keep growing. You never, you never stop growing. So I think that's what I'm hoping people walk away with is this is a model for how I can continue to mature and develop and learn while still being the same person. Everybody recognizes Tim is the same person today as he was in college. Mm. And that's a compliment in this case, at least. But he's not the same person. He's developed, he's matured, Mm. he's learned so much. That's a good model, Mm. I think, for us. In the picture, I'm, you know, Psalm 1, Oaks of Righteousness, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's That's a good one. Yeah. Hey, I want to say something to you, and I want to say something to the listeners, and then I want you to think of final final question. question. I do. Um, But what I want to say to you is, what a gift um, to have you as such a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Um, You're telling gospel stories, whether it's through your book, whether it's through shining a spotlight on someone else's life, uh, through what you're doing at the school, what you're doing with Gospel Coalition. Just thank, thank you for spending time with us, and mm-hmm. thank you for um, for everything you're doing. Um, yeah, I know that our, our listeners will, will be blessed. And so this is our first yeah. uh, podcast with this Faith and series, even though it's the last one that we've recorded. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of neat to be to be reflecting on everything that that we've been um, that we've been recording and and so many of the themes are coming up even in this conversation everything from uh, what Brian Chapel talked about with yeah. us about yeah. just grace being in the center of it all things that we've talked about with uh, Trillian Newbell and mm. Jen Wilkin about the Bible mm. and um, and so many people about culture and so just and faith f- the one we recorded on faith and technology yeah oh right yes yeah, with, absolutely yeah. uh, and so just encouragement to anyone that's listening uh, first of all we'll, we will uh, you know put in our show notes how to hear more from from yeah. Colin and maybe even we could figure out a way to get that talk he's going to give to the officers <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe we'll yeah. figure out a way to get that get that in there as well uh, yeah but yeah just thank you for Excellent. being here and thanks to the listeners for for hopefully uh, kind of embarking on this 
this podcast journey with yeah, us. Yeah, it's kind of cool to think we sit on the back end of this, having recorded all these others, and but we'll post this one first, and so now the listeners get to kind of go, oh, wow, how's this all going to unfold? Because it's kind of cool how God's worked this out. Here's my final question. Okay. Um, we, we talked about Loveless, who I've learned is, yep. was, was a bit strange. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, Dynamics of spiritual life, dynamics of revival, right? Mm-hmm. Big part of that book. Yeah. Where do you see that happening now? Yeah. Where, where, where do we begin to have hope in all this, right? We've talked yeah. about, I feel like some of what we talked about is like, wow, man, this is really scary. But God's at work. God's bringing, he's going to bring revival. I believe it. Uh, you know, yeah. what, where do you see it? Well, you may have seen, you know, we're recording this not too long after the Asbury yep. yeah. revival. And we had some some of those dynamics at Samford and in our chapel as well. And a friend of mine who's been in college ministry f- since we graduated 20 years ago said to me, there's something, the younger generation is not as cynical. Hmm. Like in the mm-hmm. 90s, we we're, were pretty cynical. There was still some Gen X edge yeah. to us, um, even as elder millennials. And he's like, they're not, they're not as cynical. They can be a little bit skeptical of being pitched on certain things yeah. and all that, but they're not as cynical. They seem to want to, and who knows what the effects of the pandemic are going to be long-term. That's the generation that's going to have borne so much of the brunt. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the disease itself, but of just the effects yeah. of everything. And these things don't have to be negative mm-hmm. in the long run. They can be really positive in the long run. And so I think there's any reason, I mean, is revival, as I mentioned earlier, by definition is not something that you expect. Mm-hmm. Otherwise the stories yeah. wouldn't start yeah. with nobody ever could have seen this coming. <laughs> and then God, at just that time, that's the whole, that's yeah. the whole point in there. So yeah, I mean, that's, I'm really hopeful about that. I mean, one benefit you have when you've done a history of revivals, like I have in my book, God's size vision is that as soon as I saw what was happening in Asbury, I thought, this is like Timothy Dwight at Yale mm. in the early 1800s, grandson of Jonathan Edwards, the president of Yale. And we totally forget, because we just don't have perspective on history. We totally forget that when Timothy Dwight got there, the attitude was none of them was, none, there were no Christians mm. at mm. Yale. They were all obsessed with French atheistic philosophy, which makes sense because it was the American Revolution, yep. the French Revolution, right? Yep. We think, no, people in the past, they were dumb Therefore, they believed in God. You know, like we just have this primitive mm-hmm. view. It's not remotely true. Yeah. But if you don't understand that history, you don't have the context to say, nobody thought there was going to be a revival in 1800 yep. at Yale. They thought the opposite. So why would we ever have reason to be skeptical mm. today? Yeah. There's always hope. God's always at work. Always hope. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. Colin, thank you, brother. Yeah. What a nice. good conversation. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back again. All right. <laughs> yeah. There's so much more, so Be much fun. more we could talk about. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us for these upcoming episodes in uh, this series that we're doing faith and, and uh, as a part of the digging deeper podcast.